All right, let's pray and get to work on our text. Father, um, we're grateful today to have your word in front of us and an opportunity that uh, I have to be able to declare your word to your people, uh, to be able to dive into this concept of what real obedience really is and what it isn't. And so I pray that you would speak to us today by your spirit, that you'd use your word to transform our minds and our hearts, and that you would give us ears to hear, not just a sermon and not just words, but rather a word from you, Lord. I pray that you'd speak to us in ways that you only can through your inspired word and your Holy Spirit. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So over 16 years ago, my wife Sarah and I were involved in premarital counseling. We were getting ready for our upcoming marriage, and so we had a series of kind of one-on-one meetings with a counselor, and um, it was a a life-transforming and a relationship-transforming kind of event. That's why I recommend that couples uh, get some form of premarital counseling. It's helpful. Uh, Just so you know, marriage doesn't solve your problems. It only makes them worse, okay? So just so you know. Um, Happy thoughts, okay? So... (laughs) Um, they're true, but that's, uh, but the reality is, uh, we learned some great principles. We learned that the uh, Bible is, uh, given to us so that we have everything we need for life and godliness in the Word of God. We found that the Bible was incredibly relevant to our lives, to our marriage. It was there that, um, I learned about what I came to kind of call the five P's, how to order my life. God's kind of person, God's kind of parent, God's, uh, excuse me, person, partner, parent, parishioner, and provider. And uh, just to understand that that's kind of how I should order my life. I also came to learn a really important biblical principle taken out of Ephesians chapter 4. And it's this one. It goes kind of at a question and answer. When does a liar stop being a liar? When he stops telling lies? No. When he starts telling the truth. Let me say it again because it's really important. When does a liar stop being a liar? When he stops telling lies, no, when he starts telling the truth. We know this as parents. If your children lie to you, it's not enough for them to say, well, I lied, and say, okay, you lied. We invariably ask the second question, so what's the truth? Because lying and the solution to it is not just stopping the lie. We need to tell the truth. Now that statement reflects a really important biblical principle that tragically I think many church people get wrong. And here's how many people think. They think that the absence of evil equals obedience. And I'm here to tell you today that the absence of evil does not equal obedience. In other words, they think as long as I don't do certain things, then that equals obedience. And we all have our list, no matter what kind of home you were brought up in. As long as I don't do these things, then I'm really obeying. And what we're going to learn today from this wonderful text is that the absence of evil doesn't equal obedience. In other words, it's not enough for a liar just to stop lying. In order for him to really embrace repentance, he has to begin speaking the truth. It's not enough to say, I'm just going to stop committing adultery. Real repentance embraces Christ-like love for a spouse. It's not enough to say, I'm not going to be materialistic. I'm going to stop being materialistic. No, real repentance comes not only when you stop spending money, but when you start giving. 
So today we're going to wrap up this little mini-series called The Portraits of Jesus, and we're going to be taking a break for two weeks to focus on the matter of global outreach and local outreach. So next week, um, you'll be hearing from uh, George Shavankamanil, who is the president of uh, Good News for India, and you're going to hear some exciting things what God is doing in India, and also just giving a, 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 us just kind of a refresher on why global outreach is so important. And then the week after that, in preparation for Serve um, 10... Um, Dr. Charles Ware from Crossroads Bible College will be here to challenge us and to stir us about the importance of social justice and how we can be involved in that in our community. And then on May 2, we'll pick back up our study in Matthew with a new series on Matthew 13 through 17 called Enigma. And this is a section of scripture where Jesus begins to say things and talk in parables and his people who are listening to him start to go, what? What's he saying? And he becomes very puzzling that he talks to them in this way. And so we're going to jump into chapters 13 and 17, beginning the 1st of May. Now, this passage that we're in today brings to conclusion not only portraits of Jesus, but also a really um, interesting section of Scripture that we've been studying on the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. We looked at that, and then we saw that the real problem was the heart, or rather, the abundance of the heart is what we really hear and see. So Jesus first got after the religious rulers for possibly committing the unforgivable sin. Then he tells them that the real problem is not just what they say, the real problem is their heart. And then when they ask him for a sign, as we saw last week in Easter, we, we, Jesus says, I won't give you any other sign but the sign of Jonah. And now we come to this final section where he's talking about the matter of obedience. And what we're going to see here today, simply, is that obedience is far more than just not doing the wrong things. Real obedience means that you do the right things. It's a simple concept, but there's so many people who claim to follow Christ who don't live this way. And I hope to help you see why this is so important. So we're going to look at two lessons from the text and then some applications. The first lesson is this, is that half-hearted repentance leads to a worse condition. In other words, pursuing half-heartedly a repentant mindset and lifestyle actually leads to a worse condition. Now, in verses 44 to 45, Jesus uses a rather strange illustration to make a very important point. And he talks about a man who has an evil spirit within him, and the, the evil spirit is removed. It leaves him. And what's important for you to note here is that Jesus is not giving some sort of theological treatise on demon possession. He's using this as an illustration of a bigger point. Look at verse 43. When the unclean spirit goes out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. So the idea is this demon has come out of this person, and it's restless. It can't find an abode. It doesn't like the the new accommodation, so to speak. And um, the point that Jesus is talking about here is that this evil spirit produced evil things in the person's life. And so when the person now has this evil spirit that has gone out of them, this evil spirit is looking for an abode or a place to live. In verse 44, we hear the evil spirit speak. And here's what he says. I will return to my house from which I came. See, this gets us closer to what Jesus is is trying to do here with this point. He's, again, not talking about demon possession per se, but rather he is helping us to see what happens when you don't do a full repentance action. The result is the demon goes back. And when he returns, the text tells us that he finds the house, three characteristics here, empty, 
swept, and put in order. Each of these three words are really important. The, the dwelling place is not a house. It's a figure of speech meant to picture a person's heart or their life. The three characteristics are first that the house is swept, which means it looks like a complete job has been done. So it looks as though someone came in and did a complete renovation of this space. The the key is the appearance of it. The second key word is the word in order. And it means that there are new decorations, new furnishings. Someone came in and spruced up the place. New paint, new carpet, new, new furnishings. So it looks as though the complete job is done. There's all of these these new things that have been done, these these external trappings. But the most important characteristic that Jesus lists here is the word empty, or it's unoccupied, or vacant. The word empty is an interesting word. It means leisurely or purposeless. So think about this. This is why you love vacation. This is why you love a, a day off. When you can wake up in the morning, and one of the things I love is when I wake up in the morning and I know I've got nothing to do today, right? My wife says, what are we going to do today? Nothing. I mean, that's we're going to do nothing. And that doesn't mean nothing. We're going to get coffee. We're going to sit. We're going to read the paper. We're going to tell our kids to be quiet. You know, we do all these things, right? But the reality is there's no no, no checklist, no to-do list. We're just going to do nothing. That's what the word means. It means leisurely and purposeless. And you know what? It's great to have a day or a week like that. But the reality is, you know, that's not a good way to live. If your son came home from college and he just finished graduating and, and uh, you, you're now discussing with him, what are you going to do with your life? And he says, Dad, I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to do nothing, right? You'd be like, you're going to do something. I'm telling you what, you're going to do something. We just don't be doing nothing. Don't be doing nothing. You can't be empty, directionless, pointless, no sense of purpose. Some of you know people like that, or you have a day like that. And Jesus says that this man's heart is like that. So the chief characteristic is not only that it's swept and it's tidy and it's order, and there's new paint, there's new decorations, but the most important characteristic is the fact that there's no owner There's no purpose. There's no direction. The house is vacant. So that then creates a problem. Look at verse 45. Then it goes, meaning this evil spirit, and it brings with it seven other spirits. So he sees this house, this person's heart, that now is tidy and well-kept, but there's no owner, no owner, and he sees an opportunity, and he goes and finds seven other spirits, and he makes that person's house a frat house, right? For all these gathering of these evil spirits, and now they all come, they're hanging together. And in other words, what happens is the cleanliness, the tidiness of this house without any ownership presents an attractive opportunity for the enemy. Hear me, no matter how nice, no matter how clean, no matter how decorated, the point and the danger of this house was its vacancy, its pointlessness, or its leisurely attitude towards who was living there. Now why is Jesus saying this? He's saying this to countless people who were hearing him, and they even made a few changes but they never came to a final, definitive determination as to who was really going to control their life. He's talking about people who's, who are very content to look clean and tidy and presentable, but if you were to peel back 
the heart, you would see there's no ownership on the part of Christ. He's talking about people who make enough changes so that appearances can be kept up. People think that the marriage is on the right track. They think that the addiction is going in the right direction. They think that that there's really no issue deep inside. But the reality is they know deep in their heart there's no real and lasting and fundamental change. In in, in fact, what's happening here is a band-aid. And the person just simply wants a quick fix. And that then leads to a worse situation. Look at the latter part of verse 45, which is a scary point. Jesus says this, And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So it will be with this generation. So what Jesus is saying here is that as bad as it was for that person to be empowered and have these evil things coming out of their heart by that evil spirit, that's not even as bad as what happens next because now the person has a clean, tidy, purposeless house and it makes an invitation for all these additional spirits to come and, and make their abode in that person. And the result is that his new condition is far worse than his former condition. So a clean and tidy house may be attractive and nice, but without an owner, it is an, it's an opportunity for a lot of unwelcome guests. So the man's failure to deal with the vacancy of his heart led to a worse problem. Now that raises an interesting question. Why is this a worse problem? Why, why is this a worse problem? Not just because of the number of the demons, so to speak, or the evil spirits. Jesus is looking not at demon possession here. He's looking at something else. In its regard to the lack of response of people who heard his words and the way in which they, they did a little toe dip spiritually. And why is a toe dip spiritually worse, a worse condition than the former condition of clearly being empowered by an evil spirit? Well, let me try and answer that. I think there's at least three reasons. You could probably find some more, but there's three that I can see here. The first is this, is the person's position is tragic. It's a worse condition because the person goes to a lot of trouble. They put in a lot of effort only to have it do nothing. And as a result, it's it's a waste. It's a tragedy. You probably know seasons of your life where you did this. You thought this this new book, this new counselor, this new church. Some of you move from church to church to church because you just want the new fix, the new thing, the new challenge. And before what? You know what happens? That church gets old too. And so you just start moving from church to church to church to church. You start moving back and forth. It reminds me of a story I heard of a man who was found on a desert island. And uh, he was all alone. And when they rescued him, they found his house that he had built. And then they saw two different churches that were constructed on the island. And they're like, why, why are there two churches? And he said, well, that church on the right, that's the church I go to. And they said, well, what's the church on the left? He said, that's the church I used to go to. I left that one. <laughs> and see, there's the mentality that we end up developing is that the next thing, the next person, the next book, the next church, the next relationship, the next marriage. And before you know it, you can move from one thing to another to another and The tragedy is, is all the effort, all the energy, it doesn't work, it doesn't last. It's a treadmill that you never get off. And the tragedy is that you do all this effort and you never really get to the heart of the problem. The second reason why it's worse is because sin is never static. So it's really important for you to know, especially 
young people, teenagers, college students, you have to hear this. When it comes to sin, once is never enough. The reason is because central to the temptation of anything is the offering of something more. There's always something else out there. So the next fix, the next thrill, just one more is always out there. In other words, sin is never satisfied. And that is why it's so important for Jesus to change not only what we do, but to change what we want. And the reason this is a worse condition is because now, if the person doesn't deal with the real issue, if they don't deal with the heart of the matter, then they will open the door for even more sins and problems. Because sin never remains the same. One of the most hopeful verses in all the Bible is Philippians 2, 12, and 13. It says this, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. In other words, here's what Jesus can do. Jesus changes not only what you do, listen, He changes what you are satisfied in. That is a miracle. He changes what you are satisfied in. I had a friend of mine who just came back from a, a mission trip in Florida with a bunch of college students, and he said something to me that was, was so profound that he said to his students, he said, it was a group of men, he said, men, look around you. This is the best that the world has to offer. There's booze, there's women, there's sun, there's fun, and I'm telling you, when you wake up the next morning after playing with the devil, you will realize this is the best the world has to offer, and you will know it's a shallow cup of fulfillment. The beauty of the gospel is that Jesus offers true satisfaction, true joy, true fulfillment. The tragedy is of a heart that's not been declared as owned by Christ is sin never remains static. And the beauty of what Jesus can do is he can change what you desire. So those commercials on television are lying to you. This is not the best a man can get. This is not, life doesn't get any better than this. If life doesn't get any better than this, that's depressing. Let alone if it's found in some beverage. Third, it is spiritually myopic. Here is, I think, the conclusion of why this is a worse condition. The worst condition is created because the person is spiritually deceived. So it's not only tragic Sin's never static, but there's also a problem of myopia here, or he's spiritually myopic, meaning this, that he or she thinks that because there has been small or shallow progress, small little steps towards change, that that means they're on the right path. Or to use Jesus' analogy, they, this person never considers that a clean, tidy, but empty house would actually be an invitation for even more problems. And let me tell you why there's an invitation for even more problems. Because the person who lives this way thinks, if I have a clean life, if I have a tidy life, if I have a well-organized life, if people think well of me, then I'm okay. And what they don't know is the most dangerous thing in the world is to think that you're okay. It's the person who says, I'm a sinner, I'm a wretch, I need help, I need God's mercy. That person is in the right spot. And the most dangerous place in all the world to be is to think that you've got it together. The danger of this condition is not just the degree of sin, it is the degree of self-deception. And the person is in a worse condition 
because they move further and further away from help because they see less and less need. Their house is clean, it's tidy, it's well organized, but the reality is it's a wide open invitation. Half-hearted repentance leads to a worse condition. And what happened here, apparently, is that Jesus is concerned about people that were listening to him who didn't see the danger of a vacant heart. He's warning us here about being confused with appearances versus allegiance. The difference between being tidy and being totally surrendered. Of a person spiritually who's all dressed up with no place to go. Or someone whose soul is like the Titanic and you're just rearranging the deck chairs. And you're headed toward an iceberg. About five years ago, we were getting ready to um, go to a soccer game. And so I wanted some of our lawn chairs that we store in our pop-up camper. And um, so I I went out to the field where we had stored our pop-up camper. And I began to crank it just to open it up enough to pull the chairs out. And when when I... opened up that pop-up camper, this smell came out of the camper, and it was the kind of thing where you're like trying to get away from it, you know, like you're boxing it, you're like, ah, ah, ah. it's like bees, but it's it won't go away, and I was like, what is that? I'd never smelled anything, I mean, I've smelled a lot of things in my lifetime, but that, I, I was like, what is this? And I'm looking, and I don't, I don't see what's going on. I crank it up some more, and then I see all these little black things, a little look like little rice pieces all over the place. And then I see this this collection of um, towels and and uh, strips of cloth and and grass from outside. I'm like, what is that doing in here? And then I crank it up, and and there's one there, and one there, and and one there, and what is that smell? And there's one there, and and little did I know that over the winter I had become a um, developer of housing for mice in my pop-up camper. And I, I cranked that thing up, and there must have been five or six nests inside my camper. You can imagine, I think 30 mice, five months, uh, eight-by-eight box. You get the sense. It just reeked like you can't believe. And I'm cranking that thing up, and that wasn't the only problem. The mice decided that when they were hungry, rather than go and find food, no, let's just eat the canvas. And so I popped it up, and my camper looks like someone had made Swiss cheese out of it. I mean, it was just, it was terrible. And my heart was just sinking, because here, camping's coming up in a couple weeks. And so I went in the house, told my wife, she's like, how did this happen? I'm like, I don't know. Those mice, I don't know. I set mouse traps. I had the place cleaned up. I even put, you know, those um, dryer sheets. They give off effervescent odor, and that was supposed to keep them out. Well, they had made those dryer sheets into, like, the beds on their, on their nest. <laughs> Apparently, they liked the smell. And I was like, ah! When I pulled the camper out, I realized what I had forgotten. I had the whole thing cleaned up. I had mousetraps set, even put in the dryer sheets. But I forgot that when I pulled the electrical cord in, there was a big old hole in the side of the camper that I never plugged. So I could have the cleanest camper, all the mousetraps in the world, even nice little dryer sheets. But if the big hole in the side of the camper isn't fixed, I just made myself a nice condominium complex for a bunch of mice. Long story short, we had to buy a new one. I sold it to somebody after I cleaned it up, of course, and told them why it was all messed up. But it was an important reminder that you can do everything right but do one thing wrong and it will lead to disaster. And that's what it is in regards to when it comes to the issue of repentance. If you don't deal with the heart, if you just want to deal with behavior, 
If you just want to deal with the heart, if you don't deal with, rather, if you don't deal with the heart, if you don't deal with what's, who owns you, or who really controls you, or this, or who creates the desires within you, then no matter what you try or what you do, you will just, you'll just rearrange the deck chairs, you'll just be all dressed up, you'll change the window dressing, and, and you'll never have the kind of relationship with the Lord that really makes a difference over the long haul. And for that matter, there's people who do that, and they're truly not regenerate. They really don't, they really aren't saved. Because they've just learned the lingo. They hang around church, they know what to say, they know when to say amen, they know how to say praise the Lord, they know how to get through church, and they know how to play the game. And what it leads to is a worse condition. And here's the second lesson. The second lesson is that true discipleship is doing the will of God. Look at verse 46. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. So apparently his family showed up. And by the way, this as well shouldn't be seen as a theological treatise on how to treat your family. This was rather just an example of what Jesus is is giving us here and how true discipleship works out. Apparently they showed up at this gathering and we know from other passages like John 7, 5 that his brothers didn't believe in him. In Mark chapter 3, verse 21, this exact account in Mark's record tells us that his family thought he had lost his mind. So they thought Jesus was, was losing it. So they go to talk to him. And somehow they passed word to Jesus that they wanted to speak to him. And Jesus used their request as a teaching moment. And he rhetorically asks in verse 48, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? Verse 50. Jesus gives us the full point. Verse 49 says, In stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he says, Here are my mother and my brothers. And then he brings home the point that he's trying to make in both passages. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus is trying to show us here something that's really important. He's showing us the high value that God places on obedience. Listen to me very carefully, especially if you grew up in a Christian home or if you've gone to church all your life. True oneness with Jesus is not a product of your birth, your lineage, your history, or your location. Real union with Christ comes by doing the will of the Father. Jesus wants people to know that true discipleship is not produced by birthright or riding the coattails of family tradition. That true discipleship is expressed in one thing, doing the will of the Father. So as important as belief is, belief is critical. But listen to me, there are lots of people who say they believe and it never materializes in tangible actions. And all they have are things that they think they believe. You see, growing up in a Christian home is a great privilege, but it can also be a great danger. We can inoculate our children to the gospel. We can inoculate them as to what following Jesus means. I'm reading a book with my kids and family right now called Growing Up Christian, a great book. It talks about the the beauties and the dangers of what it means to grow up in a Christian home. It's helpful because I grew up in a Christian home, and every once in a while I feel kind of bad about my boring testimony. You know, 
God saved me from a life of, um, of crime and drugs when I was seven. You know, I mean, this doesn't work, right? It just doesn't, I was, I was down in the Tylenol, you know, stuff like that, sneaking that. I mean, this doesn't work. I grew up in a very safe, godly environment. And yet what he does in this book is help us to see that there's, there's real value in having a Christian home and background, but there's also danger. He quotes J.C. Ryle, a bishop in the 1800s, and he says this regarding children in homes that are Christian. Take heed that you do not remain barren and unfruitful in the sunshine of all these privileges. Beware lest your heart remains hard, impenitent, and worldly, notwithstanding the many privileges you enjoy. You cannot enter the kingdom of God on the credit of your parents' religion. You must eat the bread of life for yourself and have the witness of the Spirit in your own heart. You must have repentance of your own, faith of your own, sanctification of your own, and I would add godly actions of your own. So why is Jesus talking about this? He's talking about this because there are people who are near him who hear his words, but they fail to do anything about it. And what he's doing, he's attacking their shallow, externally based spirituality that really is a fraud. He's peeling back the veneer of respectable people who want a band-aid of a solution. They want temporary fixes so they can keep up appearances. And what he's doing is bringing into light the reality of the heart and the danger of shallow answers and actions. Listen, there are some of you, the reason you are in church is because you want Jesus to fix blank. And I promise you, if that's why you're here, when he fixes blank, you'll be gone. And if you go, that means you didn't really want Jesus, you just wanted to use Jesus. And there is a world of difference, hear me, an eternal difference between whether or not you use Jesus for what you want or whether you say, you use me for whatever you want. Following Jesus was meant to produce something in a person's life. We come to faith in Christ by faith alone, through grace alone, through Christ alone. But the real faith is never all alone. Listen to Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. For by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. So nobody comes to the cross by their own doing. No one stands there and says, look what I've done. It's all about Christ. But then moving from the cross, here's what Jesus says to us about his, his commitment, his cross through the Apostle Paul. He says this, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In other words, in other words, good works, although getting us to the cross, don't bring us to faith, but they are the evidence that faith is real and genuine. So the fruit of the Spirit is not a list of suggestions. Try this. Try to, try to be loving. Try to be joyful. These are the things that are produced by the presence of the Spirit of God. So true discipleship is not just believing in God or certain spiritual truths. As important as those are, following Jesus requires action. Doing the will of God. Spiritual leisure is a deadly sign pointless, listless, not sure what I'm doing here on earth, but I like Jesus and I like to sing. That is a deadly recipe for spiritual deception. 
Christ called people to follow him with relentless abandon and know that their souls were protected and guarded by the sovereign God who redeemed them and did that not so they could have a life that they've always wanted. Instead, he did that so you could be relentless in good works and not worry what happens to you. So, let me give you four applications, pastoral admonitions that I just want you to think about. The first is this. Listen to me. There is no such thing as a vacant heart. Don't take this passage to mean that there's such thing as a blank slate. What Jesus is saying here is there is no neutrality when it comes to him. Earlier on he said in Matthew, whoever is not with me is against me. What I want you to understand is that every person has a controlling influence in their heart. The question is not if your heart is being controlled. The question is who controls it. So there aren't like three camps of people. There's like spiritual people and ungodly people and the people kind of in the middle. Sometimes I'm godly, sometimes I'm not. Sometimes I'm spiritual, sometimes I'm not. If that's you, you're over here. There's not a middle position. It would be like me saying, well, like 16 years ago, I pledged my vows to Sarah, and sometimes I feel like I'm married, sometimes I don't, and sometimes I act like I'm married, sometimes I don't, and I don't really care. I mean, at that point, you'd be like, what? You don't even get what marriage is. You are married, therefore act like it. But why is it that so many people, when it comes to Christ, they treat Christ in a different way than even how they would view marriage here on earth? There is no such thing as a vacant heart. Jesus, the beautiful thing is, is that Jesus is the only one who can take over the heart and produce what is honorable and pleasing to God. So if today you feel like you've got a divided heart and you don't know where you're at, i got great news for you. Or if you feel like my life's a mess, what do I do? Great news for you. Christ can take your heart and give you new desires, new actions. He can completely transform you from the inside out. But don't you come to him with a half-hearted, willy-nilly, just take a little part of me resolve that doesn't work that won't last and that isn't real you got to decide are you using jesus or are you done with you and need a complete new owner secondly there is a difference between repentance and regret if you can turn over to second corinthians 7 I want to read a passage to you. A number of years ago, I found this this text, and it was extremely helpful. It it, it shed light on the fact that there are people who, when they get busted, they're sorry, but they're not repentant. There are people who regret what they've done, but, but they're not really repentant. So not everybody who says, I'm sorry, is really truly repentant. You can learn the words. You can learn the language. You can even throw Bible verses on it to cover your tracks. I've seen that happen. Person knows all the text, knows all the scriptures, quoting Bible verses to those who are confronting him. And all that they are, it's a red herring to try and get you off the trail of his life where he's trying to hide what's really going on. Here is the evidence. 2 Corinthians, I'm going to read it from the NIV. Verse 10 says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. And then he gives some characteristics. And listen to these. What earnestness, meaning you stick with it and you get after it. What eagerness to clear yourself, meaning you're going to make it right no matter how long it takes you. Not just to clear your name, but to clear God's name. 
what indignation. It's this person that they see their sin, they feel their sin, and they are disgusted by what they've done and who they've become. What alarm. They're freaked out by how bad they've become. What longing. There's a desire to be able to move on. What concern. The sense that they don't have to have a counselor motivate them. They don't have to have a spouse motivate them. They can have accountability partners, but you know what? Accountability partners aren't going to solve the problem if the person doesn't really want to change. They're not bad, except if the person doesn't want to change. And so he just uses the accountability partner to say, I got accountability partners. I'm okay. I got people holding me accountable. Getting in my face. Well, that may be good if, unless Jesus isn't in your heart. And finally, what readiness to see justice done. Here's a clear one. That when they've done something wrong, the consequences that come, they embrace them as, yep, that, that, I deserve that. Fair? Oh, they don't even talk about fair anymore. Because if they got what they deserved, they, they, they feel it. So repentance is this kind of characteristic. Regret is sorrow because of being caught, because of consequences, because of the pain that it's caused, whereas repentance is sorrow because God has been sinned against. Regret looks for the quickest, easiest, pain-free way to get out of the jam. Repentance looks for thorough, deep, and consistent change. Regret usually only lasts until the pressure is off. Oh, how often I have seen this. Get the wife fixed, and the husband's back to his old patterns. Get the kids where they want, and they're back to their old patterns. Get them out of debt, and suddenly now they're back to their old patterns. When the pressure is off, then the true heart is seen. Repentance shows itself to be real by good fruit over time. All right, third pastoral admonition. There is a real danger in surface or circumstantial change. It happens so often that real, lasting change doesn't happen because people are looking not for a new master, but rather for someone to stop the pain. So they often end up with circumstantial change because they think their problems are circumstantial. The problem's my spouse, my kids, my job, my environment, my home. And what they don't realize is the real problem is staring them in the mirror. Tuesday, Eric and I were at the Brooklyn Tabernacle looking at the the prayer meeting and just kind of hanging out there, talking with staff. And in the midst of that, someone a little in the midst of a pastoral seminar said this. I love this. Your problem is not Osama, Obama, or your mama. The problem is you. I love that. (laughs) That's good, isn't it? (laughs) Or your mama. I love that. See, the warning here is that tidying up your life is not going to solve the problem. It's actually going to make things worse. And finally, there's a warning when you put off, but you fail to put on. In your bulletin is a sheet that looks something like this. Would you grab it? One of the other principles that we learned in premarital counseling was that whenever the Bible calls us to put certain things off, the Bible also calls us to put certain things on. So hear me, it's not just enough for you to stop doing certain things. You've got to put on new behavior. Let me tell you where this will get really challenging. Think of the person in your life who you just don't like hanging out with. Maybe they're a family member. Maybe they're a a person at work. Someone who you feel bitter against. Someone who you just like, yuck! And they come around you, you're like, ugh! And and your goal in life is just don't scream at them or punch them in the nose. And if you get through a day like that, you're like, bonus, I was righteous today. Okay? (laughs) But here's the thing. That's not full righteousness, folks. Full righteousness looks like not just being bitter... Full righteousness means you actually begin to treat them with kindness. Now the pit that you feel in your stomach of, you gotta be kidding me! 
I not only have to not punch them in the nose, I actually have to be kind. Like, come on, goop hub, goop hub. I'm not talking about maybe that level, but I'm saying in some level, you've got to go and... And the only way that this love is going to come out of you is if somebody other than you produces it. And when it happens, you'll know, oh my goodness, this isn't me, this is Jesus. Because there's no way I'd love this guy if it was me. You know what I do, Lord. But instead, I, I, I'm just, I, I feel love and therefore I'm speaking kind words. So listen to me, kids. It's not enough just to not fight with your brother and sister. You gotta love them. You gotta cherish them. You gotta think well of them. You gotta compliment them. You're the best brother I've ever had that's still alive. You know, you gotta promise. You gotta find ways to love them. Not just to not be unkind, but to actually love them as Christ wants us to. Listen to Ephesians 4. Put off the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, which is corrupt, and put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. You see what the difference is here, folks? It is that Jesus transforms His children not just by helping them to stop doing what is sinful. He gives them new hearts so they put on a new person, a new life, and a new future. Jesus makes you so new that you look at the things on the left and you're like, God, thank you so much. You're helping me to stop doing these things. And then you see things on the right and you're like, God, would you help me? And when He does, you know it's His Spirit working in you because there's no way you do this stuff on the right side of the column. That's impossible. And it is the joy of the Christian faith that people would do this and the world would say, wow, you people are different. In fact, that's what Jesus said. He said, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples by how big your churches are, by how much money you give to missions, by how many scripture verses you know. No, what did he say? If you love one another, not just if you don't fight, not just if you don't argue, not just if you don't kill each other, but rather by how you love one another. So following Jesus is so much more than just cleaning up your act. It's far much more than having proper appearance. Hear me. Jesus came to die for liars, not just so they would stop lying, but so that they would start to want and then tell the truth. You see, this is the beauty of what Jesus can do. He takes this definition of the absence of evil does not equal obedience and he shatters it and helps us to realize that Jesus can not only make you stop doing what is evil, he can actually replace it with what honors God. And the difference is whether or not you will let him do that and say, I I need your help. I don't want to do this halfway. So would you come and just take complete control again and again? That's why Paul said, be filled with the Spirit every single day, saying, Lord, help me, fill me. Help me to do what I'm supposed to do today, not just not do what I'm not supposed to do. Help me to love and be kind and be joyful and be patient. He can do that, but you've got to let him in. Father in heaven, we pray this morning that you would help us to move from just on the left side of the list of this put-off sheet to the right side of the list. That you'd help us to see that you want to produce in us a harvest of, of beautiful things that will never happen unless we say, God, I need more grace, more help from you. 
And while Chuck plays both here and in worship too, and maybe even over the podcast, would you just take a moment and just consider, have you been satisfied with just not doing the bad stuff? Is there somebody in your world, in your orbit, that requires not just being, not just being unselfish, but I mean that you will deny yourself for that person? Are you content with just not being proud? Or have you really embraced humility? Have you put off boasting? But have you put on esteeming others? Have you put off stubbornness? But have you put on brokenness? And maybe you're here today and the reality is the real problem, the big hole and the side of your life is the fact that you've never really given your heart to Christ. You know what? That can change today. But you've got to pull the veneer away. At the conclusion of the service, both here and in worship too, there'll be folks up front who would love to pray with you. And the power, the power of hypocrisy lies in its secrecy at any level. And that is why saying to some brother or sister, pray for me, i got to move from put off to put on. And the prayer of faith prayed by another brother or sister over you is an empowering factor. So these folks will be here and in worship too to bless you, pray over you. So Father, we pray now that you'd make us new people, help us to put on what we need to so we can put off fully. And thank you that you, our resurrected Christ, make it possible to be new people, fully committed to a pathway of repentance. Thank you that you make it possible both to will and to do the Father's pleasure. And we ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. God bless you, folks. I love you. Thanks for coming today.